When she was 16 years old, the original It girl was sent to a boarding school. For 11 months, she endured abuse at a place that was supposed to reform her. 21 years later, she shared her story, inspiring other survivors to do the same. This is the story of Paris Hilton. Before we dive into the story of the day, I have a message for a single person. The person that has used my podcast email address in order to create a dating profile on Match.com. I'm haunting you, bitch. I don't know what possessed you, but today I'm possessing your fucking soul because I'm the one getting spammed with your matches in my email inbox. I have contacted a customer service to sort it out, so hopefully, hopefully... They're not using like my own details and my own pictures. Why why would you be catfishing people with my face? Apparently it's usmatch.com. There's UK and US space. I didn't even fucking know shit. I wouldn't have used match.com, okay? That's what I find problematic. It's not even the fact that I'm married. It's the fact that you chose to use match.com and not just that, but to message and contact middle-aged white men. Bitch, don't stain the family name like this do not we do not go for middle-aged white men do you know how disgusting my podcast inbox looks right now it's literally like you have matched with ellen with ben with adam because they're only fucking florida nothing good happens in florida bitch move out from there like how many true crime stories do you hear about florida when you listen to this podcast because i assume that is how you found this email i'm gonna stop losing my shit (laughs) And hopefully by next week the profile won't exist and I won't be getting triggered in my own inbox by this woman who can't even profile a bitch. Like, if you are actually a listener and you were like, you know what, let me use her podcast email address. I don't know how that works because you should be able to, like, actually access that inbox. Maybe she hacked into my inbox as well. In order to confirm the email and the password and to confirm that the account is theirs, so maybe there's some next-level catfish, okay? Maybe I'm just, like, have a nemesis that can't just slide into my DMs like a normal person and be like, I hate your guts. Or just make a hate tweet and get it over with. But they actually create a dating profile. I wouldn't date Jackson from fucking Florida who is in his 40s, bitch. They're disgusting. Dicks in that age are disgusting. There's nothing worse than aging dicks. Anyways, (laughs) let's just actually focus on why we are here. I just had to vent and I'm haunting it. You you won't sleep well until you delete that profile. Okay, cool. Now that you have threatened that one person, (laughs) you have spent like five minutes speaking about them, let us actually focus on the topic of the day. We are talking about Paris Hilton. So, just... Another little sideline before we dive in. 
if you think yes there are other hundreds and thousands of people that maybe have deserved for their story to be talked about above somebody like Paris Hilton say it out loud say it out loud because yes there are other survivor stories that are worth telling but this is the one that I really wanted to research because as a minisode for this week I will be talking about Elan School the one in Maine, another reform school for troubled teens. So basically, I wanted to make the whole week about troubled teen industry because it is such an insane freaking topic and it's so fitting with this story today. So I wanted to basically research both topics so I can fit one into the other and make this make sense. Because if you have watched This Is Paris documentary on YouTube, which over 20 million people have so probably people coming to listen to this episode have as well the whole documentary is about who Paris is what her life is all about her private life compared to you know how people see her in public but there is that underlying theme of how her teenagehood how her time in Provo Canyon school has actually affected how she is today So if you're looking for more background on the actual school, on how they operate, stick around because we're going to be discussing this today. And then on Friday, you're going to get a mini-sode on how one such school in a state where laws are very lax and people can get away with it, where something like this is very much legal, actually operates and how that then affects other people for the rest of their lives. To set the scene, we have Paris' sister Nikki speaking about the night that Paris left for boarding school. She remembers waking up to the screams from the other room in the middle of the night. She remembered hearing men's voices and both Paris and her parents cry. And then in the morning at the breakfast table, Nikki says everybody pretended that everything was fine. But she asked where Paris was and they told her that she went to a boarding school. And then we have a close-up on their mom, who said that after Paris left Provo School, and after she also went to two other camps and escaped those, that she would take what Paris would say about her time spent in these reform schools with a grain of salt. That it did bother her because Paris was obviously complaining about these schools, but that these were their parents' ways of saving her. And we hear a cameraman ask, did she tell you that she was in solitary? And upon being asked that question, the mom's jaw just drops, and we know that Paris still hasn't told her the whole story. So let us dive into it and let me tell you the whole story. And for that, we have to go to the beginning and start with the background on Paris. Paris was born as Paris Whitney Hilton in New York City on February the 17th, 1981. She is the oldest of four children. She has her sister Nikki and then brothers Baron and Conrad. She was born to her dad, Richard Hilton, of the Hilton Hotel Fortune, who is going to go on to become a famous real estate developer, and her mom, Kathy, who is going to go on to become a socialite. To focus on the dad's side of the family first and the Hilton empire, everything here started with a man called Conrad Hilton. Paris's great-grandfather didn't really come from much. 
He went on to serve in the U.S. Army during the First World War, and after that, when he was discharged from the Army in 1919, he had about $5,000, and at the time, $5,000 could buy you a whole-ass hotel. So that's what he did, and this is when he bought a 40-room hotel in Cisco in Texas. As the business was booming in 1925, he buys another hotel. And this is the first one that held the family name. So this is the first Hilton Hotel that was officially opened in Dallas. There's a whole Hilton Hotel history that is on their website. And there is so much focus on air conditioning because air conditioning wasn't even invented back in 1920s. So fun fact, what they had to do is build like all of the elevators, the laundry chutes, the air shafts, just like everything that customers wouldn't directly use to place those onto the west side in order for the guest rooms not to be facing the western sun. It is just wild to me that over a hundred years ago, over a century ago, like actual people behind the hotels, like the Hiltons, had to think about the architecture of them so that the guests in those rooms don't just boil inside of them. Like they just have to think like, okay, we don't have aircons and it's kind of sunny here in the summer. So no guest rooms can face the sunny side of the hotel. But you would like to know if you're on the air conditioning train or following this Hilton story that in 1927 they expanded to Waco in Texas, opening the first hotel with cold running water and aircon in the public areas. So the rooms still too expensive, but come on, public areas you gotta you gotta ventilate the space, you gotta ventilate those farts out of somewhere. In 1942, they expanded to L.A., and in 1946, they would start up the Hilton Hotel Corporation. That would lead to them, in 1949, buying off the Waldorf Astoria for $3 million. And that Waldorf is going to become a key to this story. Conrad's senior sons were involved in his business. Conrad Jr. was working at Hilton along his dad and his two brothers until he died in 1969. He was also Elizabeth Taylor's first husband. But Conrad Sr.'s son Baron, who was Paris's grandpa, will end up being fully immersed into it. He assumed the role of the vice president in 1954 and in 1964, he was named the president of Hilton's domestics operations. Eventually, in 66, he asked his dad to become his own official successor, and he is going to take over the domestic operations for Hilton. When Conrad Sr. died at the age of 91, his net worth was at $1 billion. However, he decided to leave most of that money to his foundation, but Baron... Paris's grandpa and Conrad's son contests his will and ends up with 4 million shares of the Hilton Hotel Enterprise. But in 2007, he reveals to the family that he is going to leave the majority of his fortune to his foundation, meaning that when he died in 2019, he left only 3% of his wealth to his eight children. 15 grandchildren, and four great-grandchildren, including Paris and Nikki Hilton. 
One of those heirs to the throne was Paris's dad, Richard, who was the sixth son of Barons. However, in this documentary, they make this part clear that, again, I'm not sure how obvious like it was from the get-go, from when Paris was being brought up, you know, in the 80s and 90s, how much they're going to inherit. But basically, the family had to work. They had to make their own money. And Richard, from everything that I know, wasn't super invested, like not as invested into the Hilton hotels as much as Conrad and Baron, like his own dad and grandpa were. He took the family name in a bit of a different direction, founding his own real estate company called Hilton and Highland. This firm is based in Beverly Hills in California, specializing in homes and in states in the surrounding areas like Beverly Hills, Bel Air, Malibu, Santa Barbara, San Diego, and will eventually amass him millions. So it's not like they were suffering at all. Before him amassing millions, getting the real estate brokerage license and the whole move to New York, as a teenager, when they were only 15 years old, Richard and Kathy would meet. Kathy was a child actress for about 10-11 years, but once they met and got married, throughout the 80s and 90s, the Hiltons will operate their own gift and antiques shop that was called The Staircase and was based on Sunset Plaza in LA. Back in the day, Kathy would be selling home accessories on QVC. You know when you had shopping channels, like the whole ass channel, where it's like, call this number to get the best deal on this designer kind of product. And then also skincare products. She has created her own party dress collection. She dabbled in reality TV with one season of I Want to Be a Hilton on NBC. And eventually the family will amass about $350 million and over. That is all for Paris, Hilton and the two brothers to inherit. But they didn't start that filthy rich. Like They were always well off. You can see it in the home videos in This is Paris. However, it wasn't to this level. In my opinion, and I haven't read this anywhere, so again, this is just my own thoughts as I was listening to this and researching this this week, I feel like they wanted to do their own thing, right? Richard could have followed the steps of his father, grandfather, could have been immersed, become the vice president, you know, the head of operations, whatever, for Hilton. But they wanted the family name, they wanted to stay with it, but also to sort of commit it and transfer it to something else, like real estate. So during the time that Paris and Nikki and the boys were growing up, they would be moving from one luxury home to another. They lived in a Beverly Hills mansion when Paris attended her freshman year of high school at the Marywood Palm Valley School in California. We see in these home videos that Paris was called Star. She was the first baby of the family. She was, of course, like spoiled to rotten by everybody. That mom and sisters were child actresses and models. And that grandma saw something in Paris herself that she always made her feel like she could be whoever she wanted to be. But her mom didn't really want her in that world because she sort of lived it when she was really young and she wanted something different for her. 
despite of that and why I'm saying that the energy that I got when watching this documentary is that the pressure was still to maintain the Hilton legacy. So Paris constantly keeps saying that, like she would go to the grandpa's house and, you know, see the collages of the family. But then you see like how grandiose it all is. You see that that must have been in the back of each and every family member's head of like, we can't really mess up because it was stained the whole family name. So despite of her mom maybe not wanting this for her, rather wanting her to just remain this Catholic girl who would go to school, follow the rules, she would also tell Paris to always portray that everything is perfect. Paris puts this so nicely in the documentary, saying, Mom just wanted me to be a Hilton, and I just wanted to be Paris. In those home videos, we see a completely different side of Paris. We see that she was a homebody in a way, how she was making scrapbooks or family pictures for everybody, and how she was always an animal lover, playing with dogs, saving up money to buy monkeys, snakes, had a pet goat at some point. We see her in the zoo as a child, just constantly petting and loving the animals. Everything in those videos really indicated that she might become a vet one day. And like she says it herself. And then there was a shift from when she was 13 and tomboyish, you know, wearing loose clothing, always saying like her brand even today is a lot more glam than she actually is. And then when she was 15, because her family moved to New York, and they moved there because Richard wanted to open his real estate there. With a new job came a completely different life as well. Because here, if you remember, they opened Waldorf in 60s already. So now, in 1996, the family moved to that hotel. Because, I mean, why the fuck not? Why would you pay rent when you can live a lavish lifestyle out of your own family's hotel? And you can see how that pressure might have actually gotten to family, because suddenly there's no more home videos, you know, nothing is really homely anymore. Her dad is getting big money in one of the hugest cities in the world, and they have to fit in. You see how Paris and Nikki are just dressing up for the socialite scene. Everybody suddenly knows who they are because also they are in this big hotel that belongs to their family. Paris suddenly has to attend etiquette classes. Nothing really seemed real to her anymore. She wasn't allowed to go out, and she is in her prime teenage years. She doesn't really know anybody in this school yet. She just wants to make friends, and everything that she hears is just no. No to this, no to doing that. So, of course, if you tell a teenager no, they're gonna start rebelling. We see an interview with her mom in this documentary about this time saying that she would lock her inside of the hotel room sometimes. She feared that Paris is just going to run out, you know, go out partying, that she's going to run into a predator and get kidnapped. Which, in hindsight, you can't say that when you put your child through that exact same thing to a certain degree. I just I just found that comment to be so insane once you actually hear now what happens. So Paris feels like she is trapped and their parents don't know what to do with her. 
she keeps sneaking out, going clubbing, and they don't know if she's gonna appear the next day, you know, when they open the door to that room, they have no idea if she's there, if she's gonna be found dead in a ditch. So, they felt like they had to do something. First, they sent her to an outdoor program. Paris describes it as a boot camp style, just like manual labor 24-7. But here she managed to escape. She ran with another girl. They managed to escape and ran away through these cornfields and mountains. But then the guys from the boot camp got to them. They grabbed them and returned them. And then they slapped them in front of everybody so that everybody sees what happens when you try to escape. After this place, they sent her to another one, where, again, she managed to run away, jumped on the entire flight of stairs in order to escape. She said being sent to these places makes you lose your own childhood. So when her family visited her at this second boot camp, she basically begged them, just take me home, I won't do anything else. She said it made her not trust them. Not trust anybody, not even her family. Because if your family was to put her through something like this, like, what is a stranger going to do? Every time that Paris would return, her parents would again try to lock her up, take her cell phone, take away her credit card. But nothing worked. She would always find a way to go out on her own. And eventually, both Richard and Kathy got fed up. So they found yet another school that claimed to focus on behavioral and mental development. And this would be Provo Canyon School, where Paris Hilton is about to stay for the next 11 months. Before we talk about this type of school and Provo in particular, here I just want you to have this in the back of your head. I just got reminded of when I covered Britney Spears and her conservatorship about a year ago. I just want you to be thinking about the parents because in the Elan documentary that I have watched, in you know all of this research, all of these parents do say similar things. Like they were desperate. They didn't know what else to do. Nothing was working, they couldn't do it themselves, so they would hear about all of these schools that were advertised in the papers, that were, you know, spoken about on the news, that had all of these glowing reviews, so they thought, I mean, this seems to be working, and that is the only way for us to proceed. And it reminded me of the conservatorship in particular, because that was sort of done in the early days of the internet. Here, the internet wasn't a thing yet, but still, these were the Hiltons. Like, if you are sending your kids somewhere, yes, you may be not be able to, I don't know, look up freaking TripAdvisor reviews online, etc. But you can maybe pick up a phone, like, you could ring technically the president of the US and be like, hey, was there ever any single complaint against this? Like, is this actually something we should believe in? Because they had the clout, they had the power. There were other actions that, in my opinion, could have been done to understand exactly the type of school that they're sending their kids to. Because in my mind, this isn't like, oh, you're going to, I don't know, improve on your Spanish and you're going to a Spanish school for three weeks to a month. These are extensive periods of time. When researching Ilan's school, some of the kids were there for 
couple of years, literally all of their teenagehood just lost in this school and their parents don't even know about half of the things that are happening in them. So I keep mentioning Elan School. This was another school that was operating between 1970 and 2011 in the state of Maine. Just like with Provo, just like the other schools of this type, they are part of a predatory industry, preying on parents who are desperate enough and who don't understand how this mental health treatment works, who don't understand that what they're sending their kids to is technically similar to a private prison system. Most of these schools emerged around the US in the 60s and 70s. This, if you know, you know, it's the era of the cults. The era when grown-ups believe that a form of structured environment is exactly what young people needed when their parents were unsuccessful at managing their unruly behavior. It all started on the back of Sinanon, who was one of the first rehab centers in the world, pioneering this concept of tough love in order to help addicts. Parents who deemed their children to be unruly, to be abusing of drug and alcohol and partying excessively would then send their kids to these programs that were sometimes called emotional growth schools. They'd be sending them there with the belief that it's going to be a boot camp kind of environment where they're going to form a community, you know, they're just going to be working, doing things, getting all of that negative energy out and also be getting a psychological support by all of these licensed therapists and psychologists. And to give the parents the benefit of the doubt, everything that was happening in these schools was legal. That's why they wouldn't hear about them on the news. You know, that's why they wouldn't hear about any misdemeanors, about any charges towards anybody in the schools. And usually they would be registered on like different therapeutic schools. So they would be like fully accredited members of different boards. These schools are advertised nicely to parents, of course, that's why they choose to let their kids go there. It's usually, you know, like this glossy print, you see that they're in the middle of nowhere, so the kids can't even run away, or I mean, there's no benefit of running away, because where the hell are you gonna go? It's not like it's in the middle of New York, and you're gonna go to the next club. Usually they come with a ranch, you see all of these horses, you see them advertised nicely. So for Paris's parents, they're like, well, she likes animals anyways, you know, she might learn how to take care of them. During the mornings, they're going to be getting their education, they will be going to school. And then in the afternoons, they're going to be working on the ranch, making sure that they're developing on their skills, so that when they get out of those schools, they can integrate into the society, you know. We are going to return your kids without all of these addictions completely reformed. And then you learn the other side of it. Provo in particular started as a boys school in 1971 and it operated as such until two teenagers managed to run away and seek protection from a federal court. The original owners of the school then filed a lawsuit against the boys and this resulted in Provo Canyon School being told that they're not allowed to use polygraph tests on the patients, read their mail, use physical force, 
unless the patient was endangering himself or others and use isolation unless a patient was violent. Just for you to get a feel of the regulations in the 1970s. Then, in the 1986, the management changed. This management will remain for the next 14 years, and it will be under this management when Paris is going to go to Provo. Another kid that went to school during that time said that it's nothing as it's described in these brochures, it's nothing as they're told by their parents. He would say as soon as they say goodbye to their parents, the nightmare begins. They get strip searched as they go in, quite literally as if you're walking into a prison. They get all of these medications and sedatives that none of them is prescribed, that make them feel like a zombie. Punishments range from just going into a corner, either standing against the wall for hours, for weeks on end, unable to speak to anybody. If you can't stand, then they just give you a chair and then you sit. You can be isolated, you can be put into restraints, you can be forcibly drugged. So you can see how if this was to last a substantial period of time, which it does for so many people, it can range from a couple of months to a couple of years, you get out of there, if you didn't have an addiction, now you do, onto something that you don't even know what the hell you were taking. So how do you then go on to be a normal member of society? Because you also don't really get much of an education. Something that you will realize when listening to the Minnesota, so I won't elaborate on this further, but these schools are run by sociopaths at best. So they do try to get the most out of their own time here, the staff in these schools. They get a real kick out of this, abusing these kids in all different, unimaginable, unimaginable to a normal human mind, sorts of forms of abuse. And in that vein, education doesn't really fit in. So they don't spend the absurd amounts of money that people pay, the parents pay, these schools. They don't invest that money into actually getting teachers, getting therapists, getting psychologists. No, they want to keep most of that for themselves. They want to keep most of that in their pockets. So the school would roughly last a couple of hours and then everything else is just mental torture. These schools are intentionally based over roughly 200 private residential schools, just like Provo, just like Ilan, in the states like Utah, Idaho, Montana, Texas, because of the lax state regulations. And they benefit heavily. Parents sometimes pay more than $7,000 a month. And also because they accept pretty much anybody, including foster children, unwanted kids from the system and upon that they're obviously getting the money as if they were the foster family so they're collecting money from Medicaid as well. To understand how Provo Canyon School operated we are simply in this episode going to focus on Paris's case. Everything in this documentary the whole underlining story and how she comes about to actually speak about it, how she reunites all of the survivors, other people that have been with her during the time when she was in Provo Canyon School, starts with a nightmare. 
It's a recurring nightmare that she has. She's scared to go to bed each and every night. She has developed insomnia ever since she has been to this school, sleeps only for a few hours, and just hates it. Just absolutely hates going to bed. Because she remembers two people coming into her room to kidnap her. I feel like a lot of people who might have just watched this documentary because it doesn't go into much detail and don't really have that background on how these schools operate might think that this is bullshit. I'm here to tell you it's not. It is actually how it happens and it's completely legal which baffles me on so many levels. Like how can kidnapping, actual kidnapping be a charge, like a chargeable offense in court But these schools can actually legally do this. Like, if the parents sign the document, they can. Paris remembers being woken up in the middle of the night with handcuffs. They asked her if she wanted to go the easy way or the hard way. Then they carried her out of her home, and she screamed at the top of her lungs for her parents' help. She describes for 11 months simply what you'd be doing during the day. You'd be sitting on a chair, looking at the wall, all day, every day. That it was supposed to be a school, but that that wasn't the focus at all. From the moment you wake up until you go to bed, it was all day screaming in her face, yelling at her, continuous torture. She'd be prescribed pills, she had no idea what she was given, she just felt like she would be tired and numb. So, like so many kids, she found a way not to take them, you know, to pretend like she swallowed them, keep them under her tongue, and then later spit them out. But then they found them in the tissue, in the bin, and everybody told off on everybody. That is the whole point in this school, that the staff doesn't really even have to do much, that they train these people that if they want to progress, if they want to potentially leave, or even better, become staff members themselves, that they have to snitch on everybody. And that is when she got put in solitary. She'd be there without clothes for over 20 hours. Sometimes people would stay for days, sometimes week. And that day in isolation felt like a week. Paris said that small room covered in scratch marks and smeared blood with no bathroom, is one of the most vivid and traumatizing memories I've ever experienced in my entire life. Without clothes, for the whole day in that room, she was just listening to the noises and the screams from the solitary next to hers, where somebody was in a straight jacket, just screaming at the top of their lungs. From that point on, her, just like so many people in this school, knew what dial 9 meant. Because, of course, again, just like within a prison system, they would have these different codes. And staffers would use walkie-talkies to communicate with one another. So, uh, dial 9 meant that one of the teenagers, or actual children, is acting out. And when a dial 9 was called, the other students had to turn and face the wall so that they don't see what people describe as three large men just overpowering a teenager who is like a hundred pounds and bringing her into one of those solitary cells. Just to give a bit more context now on every single aspect of this story, because Paris doesn't really go into more details, the whole point of this documentary is what comes from this later. So... 
the kidnapping situation completely real. They would, you know, sign the document, basically sign their child off for X amount of time, the parents would, and then they would allow for them to be kidnapped. And it is usually practiced like this, like when they're sleep deprived, middle of the night, a couple of large men go in, overpower their child, they sometimes put them in handcuffs and then put them into the van. And of course, the kid doesn't know that this is going to happen because they would have probably run away had they known so. So they're just completely lost, thinking that they have actually been kidnapped out of their own home under their parents' watch. People in the Ilan School documentary have said, well, we know what happens when you get kidnapped. Like, somebody's kidnapping you to abuse you, to sexually abuse you, or to just kill you, for you to end up dead. And imagine how confusing that is when you know that you have just seen your parents allow for this to happen. When you come to one of these schools, then they do strip you out of all of your clothes, jewelry, basically of your identity. It is very much Stanford experiment-like, where they're going to do everything in order to dehumanize you. And then as you walk in, the one thing that struck me when I first watched This is Paris, because I first watched that and then researched these reform schools, was the whole straight jacket. I was like, that's impossible. Like, where the fuck would they even find a straight jacket? Like, this shouldn't be... This isn't happening, but it is. And that's one thing that every survivor says about these schools, that it's just constant screaming. You're sleep deprived, you're starved. Everything goes under some sick hierarchy where you only get food if you are one of the strengths, if you're one of the people who have come up the ranks. So if you're a newbie, you basically start from just like doing menial jobs, cleaning, scrubbing toilets with a toothbrush, shit like that. And if you do anything, and literally anything counts as you breaking the rules, you either go into the corner, which depending on, I think, who you are, and also each and every one of these rules is designed to break you. But, you know, you would think like, okay, I would thrive in a corner. I'd rather go into a corner than being screamed at for hours for just a menial thing, like speaking up or smiling. But if you sit or stand in a literal corner, just staring at the wall, unable to speak to anybody, you can see how that is just mental suffering and torture while you're supposed to be getting education and therapy. So the corner thing, the staring at the wall actually happens. It usually happens as a punishment. From Paris's account of events, I got a feeling that that was sort of like everything that that was the schooling, that, you know, they weren't actually getting anything out of that whole experience. And then, as we'll discuss later this week, everything there is just supposed to psychologically break you. The fact that even if you commit a minor offense, which literally in some schools can be anything, can be talking to the wrong person, the person who is not in your hierarchy, could be smiling at somebody, could be talking when you're not supposed to, literally anything, because these rules are designed to be broken because somebody gets off on it. Whatever you are to do, you would be attending a meeting or going into somebody's office for people to just scream at you, humiliate you, belittle you. And this would be happening daily to literally every single student. There's no way to avoid it. And also it is the core of how this kind of school operates. 
the whole hierarchy is there to ensure that you are completely broken when there, that you are starved, that only the people on the top get the most amount of food, that you have limited amount to eat, that you have limited amount of time that you might even possibly be able to handle, which is in school and that everything else is just there to completely break you that you're sleep deprived then when you go to sleep i'm not sure what the situation was in provo school because paris doesn't detail it but the school we're going to talk about on friday they would do like night school and then you would go to sleep and those supervisors people who are supposed to keep guard who are usually also there to be reformed who are also not really members of staff because everybody is controlling everybody else do need to like make sure sometimes with a flashlight sometimes making sure that you're in bed that you are not going to run away so each and every one of these schools has a system in place that is designated in such a way that you can't win that you leave them completely psychologically broken While you are there, even if you do communicate with your parents through mail, they control it. So if you were to write something to signal to them as to what is going on, they would ask you to rewrite it or you'll be punished. You won't even have the chance to write them a mail. And in terms of phone calls, they're also monitored. If you are to utter a word, if you are to say anything, they would cut the line. And when you finally leave this type of school, it comes as no surprise why survivors don't talk about it, why they don't even want to speak about it further, why they just want to leave it behind, and also why they might not trust the people that sent them there in the first place, because what if they send them back there again? So for the first time in 2020, when this documentary came out, Paris actually sat down with her mom to bring everything up because she did tell them that the conditions in Provo Canyon School weren't great, but she didn't detail anything. She first showed her a bunch of articles about other people who came public about the abuse that was going on in the school And she finally tells her that she couldn't tell them at the time that she was punished in this school. She tells her what happened. And her mom says that she knows that they would have been there in a second had they known, both her dad and her mom. The mom then just kind of puts her head into her arms, which according to this body language analysis that I have watched is a sign of shame, and then they hug, and her mom tells her how proud she is of her. That body language analyst is Logan on Observe. I literally mention him every single time that there is a video that is done by him. I, of course, always watch it. And he said about Paris's behavior during this sit-down with her mom, that she's kind of like distant, like looking down on her, which can be the sign of superiority, or also that she is just not feeling safe to actually say anything, that she is in this defensive state. There are also other parts of the documentary that Logan analyzes where he states that he can spot like mental processing of the abuse, that there are clear signs of just disassociation from it, which is understandable. I don't think she's lying and I'm not basing it only on the body language analysis. 
because I know the background of them now and like I know it in further detail. I would like you to watch like Paris is documentary and then another one on the school and you'll understand why I have no doubts in my mind what I disliked so much and whose fan I'm definitely not is Paris's mom in this whole story. It's just like the level of denial where you can understand it to a certain degree because you're like, well, fuck, I have sent my child to be abused and then she couldn't come to me to actually talk to me about it. But then she doesn't voice that. Like if that is what you're feeling, you're not voicing it. It's like, oh, we are so proud of you. Hug, end of story. Like, did you ever discuss it after that? Or is it just like, cool, now we move on, right? Like, did you make sure that she gets mental health? Like, help? That she gets therapy for this? Or was this it? Because I always look at people's actions. Like, what do they do in the future, in the aftermath of this? Like, okay, you might not have known it. You might not have checked. You might not have been able to know these regulations and to know what your child has been going through. Cool. Now that you do, what are you doing with regards to it? And I don't fully see that her parents are supporting her in what comes next. I might be missing out on a huge chunk of information there. But I just don't see it in the way where I would like to see something like this come out after you actually find out that this is what your child has been going through. Because if we are having the pasado pisado moment here where it's like, ooh, Boronic went on Okay, my start speaking in English. If we are just like yeah, flipping a new leaf, that is why these schools still operate. That's how they're able to still operate because the parents are like, oh, cool, you were abused. Well, okay, I mean, it happened like, what, a century ago, right? It's like, no, it happened a couple of years ago. I'm, But it's in the past, right? Look at you now. Look at how you have moved from this. That is why they're operating. Like, if a family like Hilton's was to speak up on this, do you think like that all of these schools wouldn't have been shut down by now? Like, literally, every single one of them would be done and over with. We'd never hear about any one of them. Like, because of the power and the clout this family has, I just want it used in the right way. And Paris is doing so ever since this moment. However, I don't see that the whole family is on board. From this point on in the documentary, Paris goes on to meet another survivor, Catherine McNamara. And she walks her through like different reports between 2011 and 2014. There were 56 calls of assault and 25 calls regarding sexual offenses at the school. Because, of course, it's not regulated. So all of these staff members and sometimes the students that are sent there do get away with sexual assaults as well. Catherine and Paris reunite a couple of survivors that then go to visit Paris. We find out about her former roommate, Reina, and her best friend there, Jessica, and how even Paris, like, she shows us a picture of her with some bruises taken by paparazzi after that school. And another survivor in that friend group shares another story of ending up in an abusive relationship after that school because... It felt like the school just normalized it. It just normalized violence as a form of a coping mechanism. 
They all talk about just how desperate for love they were after that, just going from one relationship to the next, not really knowing what real love is, something that isn't as toxic, or how to be in a relationship, and how they developed PTSD, trust issues, nightmares, insomnia, all of these things that were triggered only because they were in this school. We see all of these survivors make these posters saying Provo Canyon School gave me and then like all of the issues that resulted out of that in order to publish them online in support of Breaking Code Silence, which is a social media movement that encourages alumni of these kind of schools to share testimonials. Something the documentary doesn't make clear is that these posters are a direct attack at the school's own technique at humiliating these students. Usually in those meetings where the kids are screamed at, where they're humiliated, they also wear a sign hanging over their neck. And this sign is written by the person wearing it. And it sort of always says, like, ask me why I am a nonce. Ask me why I'm a pussy. Like, encouraging other students to then ask them why they are so-and-so in order for them to be further humiliated. To pick back up from this moment in the past after she has left Provo Canyon School, all of these survivors, just like Paris, channeled this kind of trauma into certain parts of their life. Like they excelled and moved on later to be really great in a certain area. There is a famous tattoo artist, Kat Von D, that also spoke about her trauma and the PTSD. This gave her, like all the people in Paris's house, sort of have a similar kind of background where they excelled in certain areas, they moved on, but this kind of trauma also seeps, and it seeps into their personal life in particular. We see that side when it comes to Paris, with her fragrances amassing $3 billion in sale, her traveling, leaving the socialite life, opening up her shop, liaising with Shiraz Hassan, who is the person behind the biggest paparazzi network. And we see how she got there, on the back of her modeling career, which did you know, because I had no clue, that Donald Trump had the modeling agency, team management. I think that's how he met Melania, because she's listed as one of his models. Listen, I have learned so much about just culture in general, and mostly about torture teenagers, so that wasn't that great. This week, well, after Provo School, Paris is going to start modeling for team management. Then she will make a cameo in a couple of movies, Zoolander in 2001, a horror movie called Nine Lives in 2002. However, she was still desperate for love. And she says in the documentary, had it not been for Provo Canyon School, the sex tape wouldn't have happened. Because in 2003, her boyfriend at the time, Rick Salomon, released a sex tape featuring Paris without her authorization. Paris did sue him and reportedly got around $400,000 from that, but the damage was already done. People believe that this was a business move for her. All of the comedians' late-night show hosts made fun of her. 
She says it herself. Today, something like this would have played out differently. But then they played it off that she was a bad person, that she must have wanted this to be leaked. That this was her first real relationship. She trusted him, so when he pressured her, you know, being like, yeah, let me just put a camera on, let me record this, only for private use, only for the two of us to see, she trusted him. And she says she felt like she was electronically raped. Here at least I personally see a pattern in Paris's life that we see with her mom and like just the behavior of the whole family. And it is that thing of just owning it and moving on like nothing happens, which in certain way is good in terms of like having goals, striving to something. I mean, what Paris has accomplished since is actually insane. Like for one person to accomplish during her lifetime is mind-blowing. But then the fallback of that is, is she getting therapy? Is she trying to actually surpass this in a healthy way so it doesn't haunt her throughout her whole life? Because what this documentary represents so well is that busyness. It's like constantly, 24-7, just being on. But then the single moment that you have when you're by yourself, when she's in her room just before she goes to sleep, you can see the dread. You can just see like, fuck, now I need to sit in this. Now I need to sit and just process it. So from this point on, she goes to make Simple Life, which was featured on Fox. It was her and another socialite, Nicole Ritchie, just living in the rural areas, doing menial tasks, where the whole catchphrase, that's hot, came about. And also the show that discovered Kim Kardashian. Some would disagree, but we all know that Kim K was featured on that show. She was Paris's assistant at the time. But you can also see the switch from when the show ended in 2007. And Paris said that she doesn't want to be remembered as that dumb blonde who was just portrayed as this airhead in The Simple Life. That that is not who she is. And she wants to show that because she is very proud of the woman that she is now and what she had created. Before we continue with Paris's story, I just have an update from Match.com, if you have been following before the timestamp of the actual case. They have just responded, telling me, like I'm a fucking dumbass, that hey, this sometimes happens when a user accidentally mistypes the email address. The email address is podbam at gmail.com. It's not like it's a name and a last name. It's not like it's Susan Smith and they have spelt it without the H in the end. This is such dumb shit. I swear to God, the companies just need to start owning up to their shit. Like just own up to your mistakes. This is the pattern of the day. Just own up to your shit and then we can possibly move on. Don't tell me such bullshit. Now we go back to the story. As her business ventures were starting to take off just as simple life was wrapping up, Paris Hilton was arrested in 2006 on suspicion of driving under the influence of alcohol. She was supposed to spend 45 days behind bars, but she served only 22 and then she was released. She will also be arrested in 2010 on cocaine possession charges. She'll be fined $2,000. And also, if you are a true fan, you will see her in high heels completing 200 hours of community service. 
I haven't found that she was ever arrested since. And this is, as she mentions in the documentary, she eventually realized she needs to take control of her whole image and do it her own way. Because it's not about continuing the legacy anymore. It isn't about what they might think, like her parents, you know, her grandparents, what people might be thinking behind Hilton Legacy and how they are going to associate to it in a different way now because of Paris. Rather, it is her realizing, well, I was literally the person to introduce selfies. I was the person behind one of the first reality TV shows. Basically, she realized her power as the original influencer, and she didn't want to be remembered for something that she did back in the early 2000s. Like, do you want to be remembered for something that you have done as a teenager? The hell, I don't want to be remembered for something I have done yesterday. Like, let alone. It's like the first podcast episode. Shame. Shame that I have brought to this family name. Like, I don't want to be remembered by it. So from this point on, she has released at least 25 different perfumes. I think that's even more than Britney. Britney perfume names are life, okay? Listen. <laughs> Listen to the It's Britney Bitch podcast. This isn't the episode on Britney, Maya. This isn't the episode where you plug everything Britney. But come on. The chances that I have had. <laughs> it is a perfect opportunity for me to do so. Britney, fantasy perfumes. The names of those perfumes are giving me life. Anyways, Paris launched her own. She launched a shop on her website. A sunglasses range. A footwear range appeared in numerous ad campaigns, literally from like fast food to soda drinks. But most importantly, something that I have been sleeping on is the amount of money that this girl is getting as a DJ. You know Sorry Not Sorry video by Demi Lovato where she's literally like in the background DJing for the party? Listen, I don't know if Demi cashed out, but I bet she did. Because Paris doesn't just appear on any fucking show. In the documentary, she's on Tomorrowland, literally breaking up with her boyfriend and going on scene, like, smashing it, living her best life. For a four-hour performance. If you want Paris to perform, you know, on your private pool party, like if you have a rich teenager or whatever, you would have to cash out between half a mil onwards. So, like, half a mil to a mil. Just, you know... Petty cash, petty change. And then we come to my second favorite part of this story, Paris Hilton. She released the self-titled debut album in 2006 with its first single, Stars Are Blind. Christmas song. Fight me on it. Fight me. Listen, if you think that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, but don't think that Stars Are Blind is a perfect Christmas song, you're living your life wrong. I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm just going to be completely blunt with you. This song is giving me actual fucking life. Also, if anybody knows what she means by when I walk, they talk of suicide. This is a good opportunity to let me know. Because I truly believe to this day that that is just there so that suicide rhymes with ride, which is wrong on a couple of different levels. Still, somehow, everybody neglects to mention this part of the song. So if anybody knows, 
let me know. I won't be discussing much of Paris Hilton's private life because this is not that type of podcast, but she just got married to this capital venture capital guy called Carter Reum, and they apparently knew each other for 15 years before they started dating in 2019. So she's happy. They went on a honeymoon. I swear, literally, like I checked her website yesterday and there were just pictures of the honeymoon because she got married like in November. So I think they're still on it. I love it. I love that Paris is finally happy because I know she was engaged a couple of times before him. So I'm glad that she finally got married, possibly opened up to somebody after, you know, opening up about her trauma and actually speaking up about it. That is where she is at right now. Let us pick up where the school is at and what she has been doing since in order to shut this motherfucking school down. I'm going to put a petition in the description box just if this week's episode and then the minisode convinces you that these schools shouldn't be operating. Please take a minute of your fucking time. It's Paris's own petition on change.org just sign it and then you go into your email inbox to confirm the signature because whatever you think about Paris Hilton herself these kind of schools shouldn't be open just shouldn't be allowed just shouldn't be fucking legal it's just common sense and honestly even if I hadn't known of all of the abuse if for nothing else I would shut these schools down for the bullshit statements that they give afterwards. Like once they're called out, Provo school officials have said that the institution is now under different ownership, right? So before year 2000, they were operated by those people who have abused Paris Hilton. Now it's completely different. So they said, we are committed to providing high quality care to youth with special and often complex emotional, behavioral and psychiatric needs. Because of the change of ownership, we therefore cannot comment on the operations or patient experience prior to this time. Did you not have records? What is going on? I mean, if this is all legit, where are the records then on these students? Come on, go into your archive, go into the break room, go into wherever the fuck you keep all of the folders. Because the reports, even with the change of management, didn't die down. The tuition that parents pay when they send their child to one of those schools now, of course, racked up because inflation, economics, all of that shit. So now parents pay at least $30,000 for their children to be sent away. And still, from 2015 to 2020, over 12,000 teens were sent to Utah to complete one of these programs. There are still reports six that I have found between 2003 and 2017 of the women that were experiencing the same incident Paris had of over-medication, being refrained, punished for small offenses, all on different campuses in Springville and Orem. There is still work that needs to be done in order for these schools to be shut down. And in partnership with Breaking Code Silence, which is a non-profit whose goal is to eradicate the abuse of kids in these systematically abusive institutions, Paris helped develop federal legislation that is going to positively impact 120,000 youth annually. What had happened is after that reunion, she had joined the movement Breaking Code Silence, 
There's a hashtag breaking code silence on every platform where you can share your experiences, educate others, and make sure that there is an open conversation going about it. On the back of this, in 2020, Paris organized a protest in a park near Provo Canyon School with several hundreds of others sharing their stories of abuse. There was literally a stage with a microphone on it. You see it all. And here she called for the closure of the school. After this, at the beginning of 2021, she had testified to a Utah State Capitol Committee, calling herself an institutional abuse survivor. She told the committee, I speak today on behalf of the hundreds of thousands of children currently in residential care facilities across the U.S. I was verbally, mentally, and physically abused on a daily basis. I was cut off from the outside world and stripped of all my human rights. I was verbally, mentally, and physically abused on a daily basis. I was cut off from the outside world and stripped of all of my human rights. Children were restrained, hit, thrown into walls, strangled, and sexually abused regularly at Provo. I could not report this because all communication with my family was monitored and censored. And what is disgusting is the program doesn't just censor communication with family, but also with the entire outside world. So there was no way we could call for help. Talking about something so personal was and is still terrifying. But I cannot go to sleep at night knowing that there are children that are enduring the same abuse that I and so many others went through, and neither should you. This led to a bill being signed into law in the state of Utah in April of this year. It's a Senate Bill 127. And what it allows is for the Utah's Department of Human Services to conduct surprise inspections of facilities. There's also going to be a more formal complaint process for kids who are in these institutions to report abuses. Anytime someone in the facility like this needs to place a child in isolation or uses a chemical restraint, they need to report it to the state of Utah within 24 hours. The governor's ceremonial signing calls attention to a problem that some say is overdue to be regulated. Congratulations. Governor Spencer Cox signed a bill into law that puts oversight on Utah's so-called troubled teen facilities. It was championed by the celebrity Paris Hilton. This is one of the things I'm most proud of in my life. Hilton was put into school in Provo as a teenager in the 1990s where she says she was subjected to a series of abuses. Now people are going to be held accountable for, they're going to be watched. Um, Everything that was happening to me when I was a teenager back here would be illegal today. She helped push the bill through the Utah State Legislature. It's about protecting um, the lives, especially of our young people who are in these programs. The bill now requires these facilities to be subject to surprise inspections by the state. Youth in them will be notified about a complaint process, and any time they put a child in isolation or use drugs... They've got to report that within 24 hours, and some of the isolation in the future they just can't do. Some of the chemical restraint that they've done in the past they just can't do. Senator Mike McKell says 
some of the facilities actually backed the reforms. We're going to keep a close eye on it. And other states are considering similar legislation. This is an issue that has been a problem for many decades, so we know it's not something that's just going to go away overnight. But Hilton acknowledges it's unlikely people will be held accountable for what happened to her and others at the time. You know, going through that was the most horrible experience I've ever been through in my life, but I feel that maybe everything in life happens for a reason, and maybe that needed to happen for me to use my voice to make a difference so it would never happen to another child again. This bill went into effect in May, and it covers about 200 facilities. So Paris is still not done. As I mentioned, she has started a petition because she wants these places shut down. She wants them to be held accountable. And she wants to be a voice for children and now adults everywhere who have had similar experiences. She wants to stop it for good and she will do whatever she can to make that happen. If you want to share your experiences, you can do it online. You can contact Breaking Code Silence yourself or just share your story with a hashtag on any social media platform. And you can also sign the petition that is down in the box. That petition is particular to the Provo Canyon School, but I am personally really looking forward to see what can be done with others. Because just the fact that over 200 facilities like this exist is terrifying. And then on top of that, you have to think what actually happens in them and what they're still getting away with. Like this isn't 1800s. We're in 2021 and this kind of shit happens. There's just no excuses at this day and age when people are sharing their stories, when you can literally call up, look anything up online to see as a parent yourself that these are the experiences that kids have gone through and just what still pay the money like speak about daylight robbery actually pay an extortionate amount of money to send your child to somewhere like this so if we are to take away a single thing from the survivors month I would say here, just like in the story of Chanel Miller, just like in Alison Botta's story, these women have gone forward imagining their future. Just there is something when you're going through trauma where you start planning for your future life, where you try to take control immediately from that point on that kept all of these women going. If there are any patterns from these three survivor stories, It is that they just pictured where they want to be, how they want to channel that trauma, and how they stepped up and spoke up in order to stop the same exact event from happening to others. And how that, in this nurturing way, helped them heal as well. It literally applies in every single one of these stories. Once they spoke up, once they revealed their name, once they told their story, it helped them heal. They took their power back. And taking the power back from your abuser leaves them with nothing. Whether it is an individual or an institution, they simply cannot live without getting off on some form of power. That's why these bills and changes are just so detrimental to the survival, to the mental health of all of the people that have been in these institutions and to all of the people that have been survivors, that have gone out of them even decades later to see 
that an institution like this doesn't win anymore, that it can't hurt anybody else, it is heartwarming. So if you want to be on the right side of history, keep questioning why people speak up about their traumas. Keep believing the survivors and keep doing something, whether it is signing a petition, sharing your own story online, if possible, and in doing so, in fighting back on the power and taking it back from the abusive parties, we do what? We make this world a better place, one motive at a time. So, bye, fuckers. Bye. Do not forget to let me know what she means by when she walks into the room, the men think about suicide. Yeah, that part. Never forget about it. Never forget. There must be some deep meaning to it that we just haven't discovered. Watch it. Watch you get like 100 DMs about this because the whole world knows. It was like a Google search away and you just didn't Google search about it. Anyways, I was saying bye. So uh, let's go back to that. (laughs) See you on Friday.